You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of crafting one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. Hi, I'm Lou Matthews. I wrote a book called Shaky Town. Lou Matthews has written seven books and published two of them, Just Like James and L.A. Breakdown, an L.A. Times best book. He has taught in UCLA Extension's acclaimed creative writing program since 1989. His stories have been published in Ziziva, New England Review, Short Story, Black Clock, Paperback LA, and many fiction anthologies. Matthews is also a journalist, playwright, and passionate cook, as well as a former mechanic, street racer, and restaurant critic. He has received a Pushcart Prize and a Catherine Ann Porter Prize, as well as California Arts Commission and NEA Fiction Fellowships, and is a recipient of the UCLA Extension Teacher of the Year and Outstanding Instructor Awards. Welcome to Shaky Town, a place invisible on maps and found only in the secret heart of its citizens. In his second novel, Lou Matthews captures the grit and gold of working-class Los Angeles and lays down his marker as one of the city's great chroniclers. He tells his tale in a cool and panoramic style, weaving together the tragedies and glories of one East Side neighborhood in the 1980s. From a teenage girl caught in the middle of a gang war, to an Irish priest who has lost his faith and hit bottom, the characters in Shaky Town live on a dangerous fault line but remain unshakable in their connections to one another. This was not a book of ideas. This is a book that I lived through. These stories are personal. As Carolyn Shute once said of writing The Beans of Egypt, Maine, this book was involuntarily researched. It's the virtue of having a long period to write a book. I mean, it's one of those things that Ray Carver used to talk about, friends of his who would put out a book and then be unhappy about it because they didn't have time to get it right. And all I could think of was like, I've been given the great gift of having an almost 35-year period of getting it right. To me, the best kind of writing is what I call distilled. In other words, it is the essence of what you start out with, just as when you make good bourbon. You start out with a whole lot of corn, but you end up with a very, very much smaller and more refined product. And that's the same thing in writing. I think that, that you know, having the time, the luxury to do that is a great gift. And most people don't get to do that. That's the best way I know to explain Shaky Town. The neighborhood was where I grew up and how I grew up. Nobody was writing about my family, my neighbors, my classmates, where we lived or how we lived. We were not considered suitable material for literature. I didn't learn that till later, so I wrote the stories. The area I was in was also known as Tunerville, and it was basically a Mexican-American community. This is so long ago that Chicanos didn't happen until the 70s, and so the term of choice back then was Mexican-American. That's who my neighbors were. My mom, she was a widow. She was a school teacher, raising five boys on a Catholic school teacher's salary. We didn't really know we were poor. Years later, I can remember reading an essay by Albert Camus on growing up in poverty in Iran. He wrote about the sun, the beach, the waves, the water. Those cost nothing. Camus says, I lived in destitution, but also in a kind of sensual delight. And that is where the book comes from. I'm just finishing the biography of Evan Cannell, great writer from Kansas City. 
when he was reading books set in Kansas City, he knew intuitively whether the writer was from there or not. As he says, if you're from here, it's in your bones and you feel it. And that's the way I've always felt about writing about Los Angeles, writing about where I grew up. I am a reverse role model for most of my students. The first thing I'll tell a group is that if you want to be a writer, don't get married. If you get married, don't have kids. If you have kids, don't buy a house. I broke two of those rules when I was 19 and 21. I got married at 19 to the first woman who asked me. I went to Catholic school. I had four brothers. I had no idea you could say no. And then two years later, my daughter Jennifer was born. That's not a good recipe for becoming a writer. It meant that I was working pretty much full time while trying to go to school. The amazing difference then was that you could do that. I went to Glendale College, and after I finished there, I went to UC Santa Cruz. And in Santa Cruz, I was always working three jobs, but you were able to do that because your tuition was taken care of. I mean, the burdens were so much less that it was possible to do that. But in any case, I worked as a mechanic until I was almost 39. And in 1985, I was finally able to get out from under the lubrac and became a freelance writer. The stories in Shaky Town, the earliest ones were written around 1986, 1987, when I was in the MFA program at Vermont College. I avoided teaching for as long as I could. I come from a teaching family. My grandmother taught at LA Normal School, which became UCLA. My mother was a teacher for 30 years. My daughter is a full professor and an acknowledged expert in her field. And I basically stayed away from it for as long as I could because I had a really stupid working class instincts. When I graduated from UC Santa Cruz, three of my professors were Stegner Fellows, Mason Smith, Jim Houston, and Paige Stegner, as you might expect. And at one point in the course of that final year, they all kind of came up and said, you know, there's this thing, it's called a Stegner Fellowship. Would you be interested in that? And being the stupid working class kid that I was, I said, oh, no, you know, writers write, man, you don't need to go to school for that, which was one of the stupider decisions I made, but uh, it's, you know, provided me with good advice for my students in the future. When I finally started the MFA program, these stories came in a rush. I think there were probably four or five that were written over that period. But it was always a book that I had in my head. My first novel, L.A. Breakdown, was about street racing in Los Angeles, which is something I also had done. Started when I was 25 and published when I was 54. Shaky Town was a book I always knew was there. And I always thought about it as an imaginary neighborhood. It combined the three neighborhoods I grew up in. It was just something I held. I always knew that it was a book I would finish. The book changed considerably because of the length that it took. As I say, the earliest stories were all mostly finished in the 80s. And then there was a long period. I was doing a lot of journalism. I was doing a lot of other projects. I did a lot of playwriting in this period as well. Things sort of got sidetracked. But one of the ways that I've found to work is that it sort of answers the Buddhist question. If you don't like the answer, change the question. In other words, if I wasn't getting the answer in fiction, I would change to journalism or I would change to playwriting. Most of those early stories were set in the 60s. 
which was where I was set. That was where I grew up, how I grew up. Later on, that changed. The titled novella of the book, Shaky Town, is of six stories or six chapters about an Irish priest who learns that his predecessor at the high school that he's teaching at molested students. And it eventually sends him into a tailspin of despair. He leaves the church and is a downward spiral. That was a section that was necessarily set in the 80s because that kind of abuse had been going on in the church for many, many decades. But the 80s was when the church was finally called to account for what they had done. And it just became necessary and right to set it then. I realized that it was easier to move everything into that decade. The original concept was that I was covering 100 years in the life of a neighborhood. And that part is there. I mean, some of the earliest history does go back to the 1860s, 1870s. But when it finally came to do this as a book, you narrow your focus. If I had to explain how this book was written, I would say that it was by narrowing and narrowing the focus. So you got down to the essentials. The book is now around 240 pages. At one point, there were close to 400 pages. It was a winnowing process. There were some really good stories that were taken out, but you learn after a while as an editor that less is very much more. The book was originally finished around 2010. And at that point, as I say, it was more than 350 pages, but the process is really hard to chart because some of the stories, some of them were very funny. They just no longer fit what happened, but the writing process itself, you have to understand that I, write when I can, and mostly that means at night. That started when I was working as a mechanic and going to UC Santa Cruz. I'm working during the day, I'm working two to three jobs, and I have a wife and a child, and the only time I found to write was when the house was quiet. And that was when everybody else had gone to bed at 10 o'clock or so. And that was my time from 10 until 12, or if I was ready on a roll, I would work till one, sometimes two, be exhausted the next day. But it was quiet time. As a result, I've always been a night writer. When the LA Breakdown was published, one of the editors said, you know, it's really funny. 90% of this book takes place at night. And I thought, well, yeah, that makes sense because 90% of it was written at night. But the earliest memory I have of how this evolved there's an article that was published in UCLA Writers Program magazine. This was probably 15 years ago. And it was about how a shift was made in the book. The earliest stories were basically my high school stories, which were all about the bad boys that I ran with on aborted gang fights, throwing eggs at people on Halloween. About the time I got to the third story, so I'd written three stories all about high school kids, high school boys, Catholic high school boys. And I was getting a little irritated, a little bored with them. And I had a voice in my head. Almost all my stories start with a voice in my head. As I, I want to say, there are two kinds of people who have voices in their head, paranoid schizophrenics and writers. The difference between us is that paranoid schizophrenics Tinfoil hats tend to be much more tightly bottled and look more dramatic. 
The other difference is paranoid schizophrenics tend to listen to the voices and follow the instructions. And writers just write them down and you know go with it. So the voice of my head was the voice of one of my girlfriends in high school, Sylvia, bless her heart. And the voice was the opening line of Crazy Life. Chewy called me from the jail, which is one of the two hit singles I've written. My friend, Gaffy Freeman, is a very well-known poet. And at one point, she used to talk about everybody gets a hit single. Hers was about her legs. She remembered being drunk at a party and sitting on a toilet, looking down at her thighs, hating them. And she wrote a poem called Apology to My Legs, which became her hit single. And she couldn't have a reading without reading this poem. I've had two. The first was a story called Just Like James, which has been published about 18 times. The second was Crazy Life, and that was Sylvia's or Dulcie's, the voice I knew really well. That was almost as though I were taking dictation. Every once in a while, every writer has this, where you get a story that's a gift that comes to you almost unbidden. My working method is I don't take notes so much as I just chew on it for a long time. I think on it for a long time. The writing process when I start goes fairly quickly, but that does not sort of ignore the fact that I may have been thinking about this story for three years. It's an interesting internal process, but once I wrote the story about Dulcie Gomez, other stories came to mind. There's a line in the middle of Crazy Life that tells the story of a Korean grocer, Mr. Kim, who basically suffers at the hands of all the junkies in the neighborhood. And when I finished with Dulcie's story, what came unbidden almost was the fact that the next story should be about Mr. Kim and his grocery. And that's basically the way the book developed thereafter. One story fed to another because I was looking at a neighborhood the model was basically Winesburg, Ohio. The other models were The Women of Brewster Place by Gloria Naylor, a great book by Pat Barker called Union Street. These were all books that were modeled on a neighborhood principle where, you know, that was the guiding principle. Everything that happened happened in the neighborhood. Once I sort of honed in on that, then I realized I had to include something about everybody in the neighborhood. And that's how it expanded. And then probably the last characters who turned out to be central were the self-described mayor of Shaky Town, Emiliano Mez, and his neighbor and rival. That was a natural progression. And it turned out that they were actually more important. Emiliano is probably the spokesman for the book, but that was formed late. The writing process is always fascinating. I can remember as a young writer, beginning writer, I was fascinated to learn how writers write. In other words, when I learned that Hemingway used a pencil for dialogue, I thought, I just learned something. And in fact, you haven't. You haven't learned anything. And the other thing you realize after a while is that writers lie. They particularly lie about things that don't matter. Hemingway used to talk about when he was in Cuba, there were things that he felt he needed to write standing up. So he had a tall bureau and he would stand there and write. He says, particularly it was important for dialogue. Well, the fact is that he was lying. His hemorrhoids were so bad that he basically had to sit on a giant donut 
and able to get anything done. But he was too embarrassed to tell anybody in Life magazine about that. So he invented this lie about writing standing up. And, you know, maybe he did once in a while, but you cannot trust writers at all on their working method. I will say that the way it works for me is that it's two different stages. When I first started doing journalism, I was at Glendale College. I ended up editing the student paper. I was also doing sports writing and editing a corporate newspaper. And my proudest moment as a young journalist was getting to the point where I could compose on a typewriter. I could come back from a meeting with student council and type out, not just my notes, but I could actually compose on the typewriter and make a story. And when I went to UC Santa Cruz, I thought I was going to continue in journalism. But when I started writing fiction, I tried to compose on a typewriter and I couldn't do it. I got slower and slower and slower and realized there was something about the nature of fiction writing that demands a direct connection between the pen and the page and your head. To this day, all my fiction is written longhand. It's probably incomprehensible to anybody else. It's very different because the second draft, when you're going from longhand to typing, first on a typewriter, now on a computer, word processor, it's a very different process. I'm not transcribing. It's a completely different draft. The rhythm of typing is different than the rhythm of writing. And as a result, it changes dramatically when you finally get to the point that you're putting it on a page. It's just a completely different draft. And then the succeeding drafts are usually done on a computer. It's usually mostly a matter of cutting when I do that. And then the actual final stage for me, and this has been true for more than 30 years, when I'm finished with a story or a chapter, I read it aloud. Because one of the things that you learn is that there are stories that are good on the page, but not on the stage. When you read a story and you find yourself stumbling over a word or a sentence, that's probably a clue that there's something wrong in that paragraph. One of my early mentors, Ray Carver, used to read his stories, and these were stories that were published. Whenever he would give a public reading, he would read with a pen in his hand. And if he found himself stumbling over a word or a phrase, he would note it. And in some cases, he would go back and change it. These were stories that had already been published three or four times. But if you go to the final edition of all of his work, where I'm calling from, you'll find that they're very, very different. He was meticulous, but he also was one of these writers who loved to tinker. He's much more of a tinkerer than I am. And when I finish the story, I tend to know it. There's something that's similar when I'm teaching. I find that if I can't remember the name of your lead character after two readings of a story, that's probably the wrong name. It's one of those things that you learn after a while to trust that instinct. One of the things, the dividing line between craft and art is sometimes a fine one. And you can test this yourself on your own work. When you're working from life, when you're working from a character that is based on someone you know, almost always you will change the name, but you will not change the number of syllables in the name. If I have a character named Charlie Jensen, I might change it to Warren Jensen, but I couldn't change it to Bob Jensen because then it wouldn't sound right. It has to sound right in our inner ear. If you know me, you could probably recognize a lot of the people in Shaky Town by the number of syllables. Although the other thing I do quite a lot, and I've done it since my very first book, I include a lot of real names in my books, 
because I love doing a little homage to my friends. Some of them are alive, some of them are dead. And so far, nobody sued. But it's just one of those things. In L.A. Breakdown, there's a section at a draft board. The roll sergeant calls out the names of everybody who's waiting to take their draft physical. And it was everybody who was in my master class at the time. And I just love doing that. It just, you know, gives you a giggle later on. But of course, the other thing is like after a while, you get to the point where you say, well, you know, your name is in my newest story. And maybe we should talk about, you know, right now you are a child molester and an embezzler. But we could talk about upgrades. In other words, like, you know, for a very small sum, it's possible that you could be, you know, being maligned by an evil journalist and, and none of this is true. And you're actually a noble soul will probably become a martyr in your final days. But, you know, in other words, like, I love the idea of, of doing upgrades. When I talk about rewriting in class, I realize that rewriting for particularly for beginning students is the hardest part of the process. And one of the reasons it's so hard is that when you spent a week perfecting a paragraph and somebody says, you know, this doesn't really work. It's really hard to forget how much work went into it. The only thing that actually works in rewriting is time. If you can put a story away for a year and come back to it, it's very easy to do the necessary rewriting because you've forgotten how much work was involved. The ideal situation was that of Robert Frost. Robert Frost had in his writing workshop 366 shoeboxes, one for every day of the year, including February 29th. And if he was having a bad day, a slow day, or just wanted to go back to other work, he would go to the shoebox for that day and open it up and find poems, failed poems from March 3rd, going back 30 years, 20 years, 10 years. And he would look at them and, oh, well, that's obvious what's wrong here. You know, as I say, that's the best way to rewrite. Most of us don't have that luxury, particularly when you're on a deadline. And it's actually the great advantage of having being in a writing class is that you are forced to rewrite. But it's really, really hard to do initially. After a while, you get much more cold-blooded. Hemingway used to talk about killing your children. And that's also the case where sometimes it's your favorite stuff. But the way I always phrase it is that you have to put yourself in service to the story. I don't particularly believe in God. I've been a lapsed Catholic since I was in probably fifth or sixth grade. But if you're a writer, you believe in something larger. The fact is that when you write, every once in a while, you will tap into something. You write better than yourself. You write larger than yourself. But I think you tap into something that is historic, racial, special. I don't know what it is but you become better than you're capable of, of being as a writer. I go back to work that I was writing as an undergraduate, and there were lines in there that make me wince now, but there are also lines in there that are as good as anything I've ever written or will write. And that's what makes you, you know, believe in something larger than yourself. I mean, I do think we're tapping into something that is beyond, you know, our mortal coil, I guess, if you want to put it that way. And sometimes there's just some magic that happens, you know, where you're just, as I say, given gifts. It's usually, it's, it's a voice in your head where you just wake up. One of the things I face in my classes also are people who have writing blocks and who take a class because they're blocked. And of course, that's one of the great ways to get rid of a writing block because if you're paying six, seven hundred bucks for a class, you better produce something. 
one of the things that I learned very early was that when you're faced with that, and every writer will be faced with that eventually, there are ways that you can break yourself out of it. When we moved back to Los Angeles, it was a very different world. My wife was in her first year of law school. We didn't get to see each other much. Here, I was doing brutal work. I was working at a dealership in Canoga Park, and the work was brutal. The money was very, very good. But you were working for 12 hours straight. Sometimes you'd have lunch, sometimes you wouldn't. And I found that I was becoming exhausted by the process and also blunted by the process. I found myself had less and less interest in reading and writing and basically fell into the first sustained writing block of my life. And I had an important lesson at that moment. And oddly, it went back to an old mechanic I worked with, a guy named Gene Cheney. Gene had lived through the Depression, and he had a saying, during the worst of the Depression, you owed money every place, and you might be making you know, $10 a week. But before you paid all your debts, he says, you paid yourself first. You put a dollar into your bank account, and then you paid everybody else as much as you could. But by paying yourself first, you felt that you were making some progress. You felt that you were doing something towards the future. I took Gene's line, and I applied it to myself. I started getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and what I found was that it changed the day. When I first started doing this, it gave me about two hours before I'd have to get ready for work. And when I first started out, I would just read. But reading finally unlocked other things. And I finally started writing down notes. I was doing a lot of journalism, trying to do journalism at the time. So I started writing notes on that. And eventually, it got to the point that it extended to work. By doing this, it changed the nature of the day. I would be at work, and I would grab a greasy napkin or an invoice and scratch down some notes on a story I've been thinking about the night before. And eventually it became full circle, where I would not only be thinking about my work during the day, but you also end up using the dream time. In other words, there's a point you reach where you wake up with a solution to the problem you went to sleep with last night, where you found out what it was you were supposed to do to complete the next paragraph. Hemingway has a line about saving yourself that you always, you never write yourself out, that you save the line you know to get you started in the morning. And this is a continuation of that, where you basically end up working throughout the day and throughout the night. And again, this comes back to the fact that you are tapping into something larger than yourself. The book was originally finished around 2010. It was a very gradual process, as I say, and then rejected virtually every place in New York. And the response was always the same. This is really good writing. We don't know what to do with it. This is good writing. We don't know what it is, but we know we can't sell it. Part of that is that New York wants to get back their version of Los Angeles, the version they prefer. You could go back to the 1950s. There was a producer named Irwin Allen who made a fortune by destroying Los Angeles over and over again in movies like Them, War of the Worlds, Tarantula. Anytime you could destroy Los Angeles, people around the world loved it. And it's true to some extent with the books that are written about Los Angeles. Very few of them are written by natives. They're written by anthropologists, archaeologists from New York who come out to explain to civilization what the natives are doing. 
So you're at a disadvantage if you're trying to write about your hometown as the place you grew up in, not the place you'd parachuted into. That's changing gradually, but it became pretty clear by later in the decade that this was never going to happen in New York. Fortunately, it was taken over by Jim Gavin, former student of mine in the writer's program, who had a hit TV show, Lodge 49, and just decided that the only way this book was going to be published was if he did it. And he had been talking to Colleen Dunn-Bates at Prospect Park Books for a year or two and decided to do an imprint, Tiger Van Books. That's the way the book came about. It was a great gift. When I talk to writers now who've gone through the editorial process in New York, it's sometimes brutal. It is sometimes impossible to finish the book that you thought you wrote. My editing process was a great joy because there was simply no line-by-line editing. There were suggestions. In almost all cases, it was simply cuts where Jim would say, this story seems a little long. And there were three stories that I cut severely. These are all the high school kid boy stories. Huevos and a story called Consuelos Rifa. Probably, you know, 25 pages were cut from those two stories. They were very long. Most of the rest of the stories remained unchanged, but there were a lot of stories that were cut. And there were stories that just no longer fit in quite the same way. It's a little bit like painting in a way. There's a great line again from Hemingway. He talks about learning to rewrite from studying impressionists in the Louvre. And the first time I read that, I said, what does that mean? And then I started thinking about what do impressionists do? Impressionists are, are painters who work basically with smudges or dots and the mind, the eye of the beholder creates the painting. What Hemingway was saying was he learned how much you could leave out, as the Impressionists do, how much space you could leave there and still have a painting. And what he used to say was that it's like an iceberg, 95% of it should be below the water. But you basically will end up leaving only what is in service to the story. And sometimes that's a matter of a word, a matter of a line. Sometimes you don't have to change it at all. My friend Dana Johnson has a really fine book called Elsewhere, California. A week before it came out, they said, well, here's the cover. And Dana said, what? I've never seen this. Oh, you didn't see this? Oh, well, that's the cover. And that was her introduction to her cover, which she finally accepted. I had a very different process and one that when I describe it to other writers, they become incredibly envious. When Jim Gavin had his first story published in The New Yorker, the story was called Costello. And the illustration was done by a wonderful graffiti artist from Philadelphia named Steve Powers. His art name is Espo, E-S-P-O. You look him up, you Google Espo, you won't believe what you find. But anyway, he and Jim stayed friends for about five or six years. So when the book came about, he decided that Steve was the guy to do it. And the first thing he did was send the book to Steve. Steve read it in manuscript. And I'm trying to think, when has an artist ever read a manuscript to decide how to, you know, it turned out we really clicked. First of all, he's kind of a working class guy from Philadelphia. 
he's a graffiti guy. I was a graffiti guy. We, we really hit it off. So we started talking and it became really personal. He wanted to know about the actual region. Where was this based, you know, geographically? When you boil it down, it's actually Glassell Park and an area around San Fernando Road, Fletcher Drive is kind of the heart. And there was a wonderful drive in there, Vandy Camps Drive in and Bakery. And it was probably the preeminent example of modern art architecture from the 40s in the state of California and possibly the world. It was extraordinary. And that was the central focus. So I sent him photos of that and that was it. Once he saw the windmill, that was it. But it took him about three months to do, which was driving Jim crazy. But he came up with this amazing graphic. And I'm sorry, you can't see that. But if you buy the book, you'll be able to see it for free. And we were just stunned. We did a few changes. We took out a few things. And then Jim tried to bill Steve for this because we were figuring, you know, this guy usually gets five, 6,000 for an illustration. And Jim kept sending him, you know, send me your invoice and Steve wouldn't and still hasn't to this day. And I'm thinking that's unusual. But the fact is that a whole lot of people stepped up on this book the same way all the way through. I mean, the people, bless their hearts, when we had our book launch, I mean, they went out of their way. But all along, both the printers, the designers, everybody has done their best to make it as beautiful as they can. And I have to say that I, I'm really happy with the book, the way it looks. And it's an extraordinary, extraordinary work of art. And the first thing that people commented about it is the cover. And in fact, in places like Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, they no longer mention the writer, they mention the artist. First thing out of their mouths is like, cover by Steve Espo Powers. That extended with both with Jim and with Prospect Park. Colleen Dunn-Bates has run Prospect Park's books for about 12 years. She finally had to give it up. She was exhausted. One of the things you learn about small press publishing is that it's an impossible task. Every once in a while, one press will survive. Usually in California, the model has always been Black Sparrow. And Black Sparrow was the model because it had Bukowski. And Bukowski made it possible for a whole lot of great other writers, including Wanda Coleman, Diane Wachowski, et cetera, et cetera, to be published. That was then, now it doesn't really happen. Colleen made the mistake of trying to publish fiction. She's almost always a loss leader. I mean, the history, starting with North Point books, Counterpoint books, Counterpoint is surviving, but they're now an East Coast book. Black Sparrow is no longer a West Coast publisher. They're run by Echo Press. Prospect Park was bought out by Turner Books, and that's the publisher of of record now, but it's still Jim's imprint. And that's the most important thing. And there may be more books to come, Tiger Band books. I have to talk a little bit also about some of the magazines that sustained me, because as I say, this was not a book for a long time, but the stories were published almost continually. And regardless of what happens on the book front, there are still a lot of great magazines out there. And for me, there are three in particular, the New England Review, Ziziva, three of the stories in Shaky Town, A Curse on Chavez Ravine, Last Dance, and The Mare Proclaims were all published in Ziziva. Oscar Villon there has always been a fan. That makes a huge difference. The third was Steve Erickson and the late lamented Black Clock, which was a great magazine. It's gradually being recognized for what it is, possibly the best literary magazine over the last two decades in this country. 
Steve had a program where basically, if you were part of the stable, you published, I published seven stories in Black Clock. And that sustained me through some very, very fallow periods. You know, you need enough to keep you going. You need just enough luck to sustain you. I guess you probably have to talk about the nature of writing, why we do this, whether you're successful or not. And one of the things I learned very early on when I was taking my very first workshops at UC Santa Cruz, I'd be surrounded by people who talked about they had to write every day. If they didn't write every day, somehow they were undermined. They were, you know, they felt completely terrible. They felt suicidal and they had to write every day. And fortunately, most of those people dropped out about halfway through the class, but I've never felt like that. But when people ask me why I write, there are two things that come to mind. One was a quote from Flannery O'Connor. When she was asked that question, she said, because I do it well. People seem to think that was sort of a snippy response. It's not. I know exactly what she means. When you do something well, it sustains you. And I don't care whether it is plumbing or brain surgery. When I was working as a mechanic, I specialized particularly in Porsche and VW. At that point, you would set points manually on a distributor. I got to the point, I had done so many tune-ups that I would look at the points and set them by eye. This is a distance of 14 to 16 thousandths. The difference between 14 and 16 thousandths is the thickness of a piece of cellophane that surrounds a cigarette pack. When you can get to the point where you can make that kind of distinction, you know you're on to something. You test it with a dual meter, but you check. It's the same thing in writing. It's the repetition. In other words, the more you do of this, the easier it is to solve, the easier it is. I've been here before. In other words, if I'm having brain surgery, I don't want somebody opening up my head, looking down and going, huh, never seen that before. I want somebody who's done it in his sleep. And doesn't have to think about it. They just do it. So for me, it's a matter of repetition. As far as why you do it, it's because you're a better person. It's because you're whole on some level in a way that you never are. I mean, you always have great gaps in your writing life. There are just times when things are, you know, Hemingway used to call this refilling the wells. It's a fallow period, but you live through those and you get back to that because of that remembered sense. There have always been a number of three by five cards on my wall, and some of them are inspirational quotes from other writers, Ezra Pound, who says, fundamental of accuracy of statement is the sole moral judgment to be made in fiction. There's a great line that I've always loved from Isaac Dennison's, try to write a little each day without hope or without despair. There's one three by five card I've had on my wall now for about 50 years, and it was one of my own. I wrote it when I was probably a senior at UC Santa Cruz, and all it says is the essential pleasure is in the work. And it's a reminder that agents, graduate school, publishing, literary gossip, chatter is sometimes pleasurable, but it's not why you write. That part is a distraction. The reason you write is the time that you got it correct. When you finished a sentence or a word or a paragraph and you knew you nailed it. And all of life is trying to get back to that moment where you got it right.
where you nailed it. And now, a reading from Shaky Town. The section I'll be reading today is from a chapter or story called The Moon Reaches Down for Me, like the fist in a Sequeiros painting. The narrator teaches art, and the painting that's mentioned is in the title is a self-portrait from Sequeiros from 1945. A boiler maker is an unmixed drink. It's a shot of bourbon or whiskey chased with a beer. Your stomach does the mixing and something more, I think. Cold fusion or an hallucinogenic reaction, some small rebellion. You sip the bourbon, swallow the beer, and then it kicks back. A slow punt lofted up the neural sheath. You feel it at the base of your skull and think about hang time as it travels pleasurably up to that small patch inside your pate where spine shivers start. I don't drink Boilermakers often. My usual evening drink is bourbon with a splash of water. On hot days, I like beer. When I drink beer, I get a comfortable, lazy feeling. Bourbon keeps me alert. Bourbon makes me think that I'm thinking. Boilermakers are a wild man's drink. None of the usual sobriety sensors work with Boilermakers. With Boilermakers, you're suddenly over that edge, slurring, without a clue that you were close. I know I'm over that edge when I start eating everything in sight. It's a matter of ballast, trying for balance. I really don't like to be drunk. I like that nice, loose, imaginative stage, this side of drunk, and I eat when I drink, to say on this side. With Boilermakers, though, food doesn't really help. I don't slow down. Even when I'm eating, I keep setting up that shot in the beer. On the night that I'm thinking of, I'd gone back to Maddie's house. Maddie is my friend, Madden, Madden Davis. Maddie wasn't there, but I had a key. He decided when I started teaching at the university that I should have a place to hole up. He's a good friend, Maddie. He knows how small a town Loma Linda can be. I just finished office hours, nine hours to talk with 15 students and look at their new work. Most of them were doing watercolors. There was some catching up to do. I was making up two weeks of canceled office hours. My mother had been in the hospital. The tumor was malignant. It was confined, they hoped, to the uterine area. She would have radiation therapy to shrink the tumor and slow the cancer. The doctors wanted to do a hysterectomy after that. At Maddie's, there was beer in the refrigerator. Mickey's Big Mouth. It's a barrel-shaped bottle with a big mouth. After nine hours of talking, I was dry enough to inhale one. The first sip was amazing, cold, almost sweet. It was a slap at the back of my head and a long descending shudder. I finished it and opened another. It was just six. There would be another hour of light. I finished half the second beer and thirst and dry throat gone. Wished it was bourbon. I wanted the clarity of bourbon. I checked the liquor cabinet. There was a liter bottle of Jack Daniels on the bottom shelf with about one good shot left. Maddie would have been disappointed. He prefers to anticipate his friend's needs. He takes friendship and hospitality most seriously. Maddie comes from an old Virginia family, and even though they've run out of the money about three generations ago, he still has their generous instincts. He just can't afford all of them all the time. Maddie's other family inheritances are a wonderful soft accent and more manners than can be used in California. I considered the whiskey. I wanted a jolt before I drove the freeway. The commute Loma Linda to LA is 80 miles. I've been driving both ways twice a week for three years, long enough to know every flicking building, light, 
sign and off-ramp, peripherally and by heart, long enough to be dulled by the drive. The jolt is to change perception, to make myself more interesting, which makes the commute tolerable. I watch the light hairs on my arms moving, the air, the beer, the whiskey, the breeze, the twilight. They all had something to do with my contentment. My shoulders felt light, oiled. The hair on my neck felt the air. Every hair was a sensor. Every pore was a nostril. There was the first taste of shade in the breeze now. I watched the chill bumps come up on my forearms. Closure. It was easy to get into the car. The seats were warm and the red leather was fragrant. I turned on the lights at the first stop sign. My car is an older Porsche, painted silver. At this time of evening, the exact color of the air, which makes it hard to see. I've learned to turn on the lights. I reached my on-ramp. The freeway runs almost directly due west. I turned into the on-ramp in second and wound through the rest of the gears as I slid across the empty lanes. I enjoy the shifting, the crisp sound, the surge after each gear change. I shifted to fifth as I tucked into the center lane, ran it up to 80, and then backed off. When the speedometer had dropped to 60, I put my toe back on the gas pedal. The commodore pegged at 3,400 RPM, and the exhaust note became the familiar drone that would carry me to Los Angeles without a speeding ticket. I suddenly wished I'd bought another beer for the road. The 215 interchange was in sight. It's one of my markers. 10 miles beyond Loma Linda, five before Fontana, 60 miles from home. This is one of the elegant interchanges. The 215 crosses over by freeway, the 10, 30 feet up, eight lanes on two tracks, four spiraling off-ramps unite the two freeways. The ramps rise out of the earth. They sweep, tower, curve, bank, recurve, and everything changes as you drive through. It's like tracing a Mobius strip. At sunset, with the orange light behind it and with the speeding cars and huge trucks changing its shape on the millisecond, the interchange becomes monumental art, more complex and visionary than the earth art documented in museums. I always think they should let the architects sign the pillars. These architects are as unknown as the architects of the pyramids. This night, in my peculiarly sensitized state, the interchange was beautiful. The backlight, the setting sun made it overwhelming. Blessedly, there were no other cars. I dropped down a gear and cut my speed to 40, holding the vision as long as I could until I slid under the overpass. Around Fontana, the sun changed. The sun levitated, no longer floating, but up there by will and the force of watchers. The color changed, gold to orange to red and then blood red. A black collar surrounded the orb just before it flattened to an egg and dropped below the mountains. The doctors couldn't agree on the tumor. The first, a gynecologist, thought it was a young tumor, fast growing. The second, a radiologist, thought it was an old tumor. How old, I asked, and he shrugged. Years, I said, decades? He told me, I can't speculate, but years, certainly. I asked, is this something that would have been spotted on a yearly pelvic and pap smear? He looked at my mother, lying back with her hand on the bed rail. She was blinking slowly, her eyes dark and bewildered with pain. Her hand gripped the rail and her head lifted. She was trying to follow our conversation. The radiologist pushed at his glasses. Look, I can't speculate, and besides, what's the point? He forgot his bedside manner. What's the point, the radiologist said. To make your mother feel bad? She doesn't need that. She needs all her strength to fight back. We looked down at her, this heavy, anxious, sweet-faced woman. 
Her flesh was slackening, loosening everywhere but her skull. She gazed up at us, seeking an attitude. Her smile was tremulous. Her small, perfectly even teeth never quite met. It was as though we were speaking in a foreign language and she could only understand the tension. Above all, she wanted not to be a cause for argument. Her long hair, still naturally dark and still a matter of pride for her at 67, was caught under her pillow. Her freckles looked gray. Her hair was lank and thinner than I'd ever seen it. I'd been furious at her that morning. I'd learned she hadn't seen a gynecologist, hadn't had a pap smear in more than 20 years. She'd had her five sons. Her husband was gone. Good Catholic mom. She shut down all those years ignoring her body, ignoring particularly that part of her body. It was hard to muster any anger now, looking down on her. I took her hand. Her eyes closed and the worry lines on her brow went away. Only irony was available. Good Catholic mom, no reason to maintain the machinery once the factory was closed. The Right Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. The Writer's Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.